Well, welcome to the Sunday School class on the book of Judges. My name is Justin Ellis, one of the ruling elders here. And last week we had our introduction to the book with uh, Joe providing some helpful comments. Uh, there was the, the memory jogger for Anchor Network and News that was helpful. And as I was watching it on video, he was looking pretty fit, by the way, uh, in the class. So keep up the good work. Um, toward the end, he, he mentioned he was going to do a preview of, of the next week. And I was getting a little nervous, thinking he might, uh, might take away all the, all the resources I was going to use. But anyway, um, but as we... As we started the book of Judges, there were a couple of things that uh, you may have noted that were troubling signs. Uh, for instance, why were they not taking the land as they had been commanded? There were some kind of open-ended questions about whether they were doing that. And then uh, you recall the judgment that was rendered by the angel of the Lord and there was a comment about their gods being a snare to the Israelites. Um, so, as we continue here, in many ways the book of Judges is a, is a tragedy. And uh, while we didn't get the full-blown expression of that last week, we will, we will be there today. Uh, the value of a, of a bad story is perspective. Uh, it's hard to appreciate what you've come from in some cases if, you know, it's not to say that we ought to be as bad as we can be in order to appreciate it, but, uh, but if, 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 for instance, if your preaching never refers to things like sin or death, what do you need a Savior for? Um, and so I think that books like Judges are helpful in that regard. And uh, as a result, they highlight the mercies of God to us. So this week, uh, the troubling signs will continue. We're, um, we're covering these four topics. Uh, as, we, as we discuss, uh, it'll be Judges chapter 2, verse 6, through Judges chapter 3, verse 6. So, a death, a transition, a blessing, and a curse. And you'll notice a dramatic shift as we, as we go through the lesson here. Um, there is one warning that I will make about uh, some of the content it, uh, that, that comes up in this text where uh, we don't have too many young folks in fact, I think most of them are my, my kids, but uh, if you haven't had that talk with your kids yet, you will maybe after this, uh, this lesson here. Um, so that's my warning. All right, why don't we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, Holy God, we thank you for your word that you've given to us. Father, we thank you for the, for the whole counsel of God that you've provided, uh, even when they are hard lessons, such as the one that we'll cover today. And uh, we ask that you would 
use it in our lives, that you would apply it to our hearts and our minds, that we might be conformed into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let me, uh, let me read real quick. If y'all want to follow along, Judges chapter 2, verse 6, to chapter 3, verse 6. It's in 201 of the Pew Bible. All right, hear God's word. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in in Timnath-Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he told them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned. And as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord. And they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against, the, against Israel. And he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. 
Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It, it was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal, Hermon, as far as Lebohemoth. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Thus ends the reading of God's word. So, obviously, as we see in, in verse 6 here, there's a, a change, a drastic change in the story. You may recall from last week, there was discussion about things like Judah, the tribe of Judah, seeming to, to excel, going in and taking the land, devoting their enemies to destruction. But then you also had these other tribes, uh, for instance, Manasseh, Zebulun, Asher, and Naphtali, who were tribes who failed to conquer the land as God had commanded. And as Joe pointed out uh, last week, they failed to fully obey God's commands. And these are some of the troubling signs that we, that we began to see. Well, the, the text that we have that, that I just read this morning is meant to... Uh, Get behind on my slides. It's meant to give us some perspective. So hopefully y'all can see what that is, the Eiffel Tower. They flew us right over Paris a couple months back. It was pretty nice. But in, in the case of our text today, it's as if the author is stepping back to help us to see maybe the bigger picture uh, we, you know, we were in the weeds, getting the tactical details of of the various tribes taking the land and what have you, and and now this this text that we're covering today is a step back, and it's he's setting the groundwork for what we can anticipate as we move forward. It's it's kind of a recalibration, um, and hopefully. I realize we've already read the text. Most of everyone here probably has read through the book of Judges before, so there won't be necessarily any surprises for you, but I'm hoping that you will you will pick up on some of the, the subtle cues that the, the author uses to help uh, kind of hone us in. So as we continue here, looking at uh, the, the passing of Joshua, Notice at the beginning of uh, verse 6, it says that Joshua dismissed the people. So we're beginning to see kind of a, a long goodbye, uh, better goodbye than Moses or Aaron had, but, um, but a long goodbye nonetheless. And uh, 
I, I don't know if you have picked up on the fact that this, uh, this is not the first time that Joshua's death has been mentioned. More, more on that here in a minute. Uh, notice the, the positive spiritual assessment that the writer gives for the people of Israel here where he says, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. But uh, as you read that, you may notice that there seems to be a little bit of a, a, a correlation, a connection, a contingent relationship that exists between the people of Israel doing well, serving the Lord, and the fact that Joshua was alive. It says they served the Lord all the days of of Joshua uh, and all the elders who outlived Joshua. So when Joshua or the elders were alive, the people served the Lord. When the elders or Joshua were not alive, well, we don't know yet, but uh, that seems to be what he's, what he's setting up for us. And continuing on, verse, uh, there, there is some encouraging news, at least for Joshua's sake, uh, the fact that he is buried with his inheritance within the boundaries that he had been given. Uh, those are all encouraging signs and evident of his faithfulness, uh, we could see, but, uh, but now he's dead. So this is actually, you, you may or may not know this, but this is the third time that we've been told Joshua is dead. So at the end of Joshua, the book of Joshua, we're told Joshua was dead. The very first verse of the book of Judges, we're told Joshua is dead. And now the third time we're told Joshua's dead. So you all have probably heard, if, if, if the Bible says something three times, we might, we might want to pay attention to it. Um, and, and I do think that it is a, a fairly significant event uh, in, the, in the life of the people of Israel. As uh, commentator Del Ralph Davis, the, the, the commentary that we're using mentions, oftentimes the Lord uses the end of service of, a, of one of his saints to mark the beginning of a, of a new chapter. So for instance... The book of Exodus begins with the, uh, with the death of jo Joseph being mentioned. Joshua begins with the death of Moses. Obviously, Judges begins with the, with the death of, uh, of Joshua. And, and you could even say maybe, you know, the book of Acts begins with the ascension of Christ. Um, so a new chapter. I also think there's something else that is helpful to point out here. You may note that for as long as the people of Israel have been a mighty people, as they, as they grew and, and expanded, fulfilling God's promises to Abraham in Egypt, as they became enslaved, that they've always had a great leader. God had always given them a leader. And obviously we had Moses uh, through the Exodus and into the wilderness and then we had Moses handing off the responsibilities of leadership to Joshua. Um, well, that, 
that's all coming to an end. Um, by the way, notice the parallels between the commission given to Israel and Joshua and that which was given to Adam in the garden where Adam was given the task of subduing the land and driving out evil and yet similar ineffectiveness. So I don't know why they gave me in God's providence this section on providing background and framework, but I like, I like to give background and framework, so that's what we're going to do. Uh, if you recall how begrudgingly the people of Israel have followed God's appointed leaders uh, through, through their history, by no means has this been a symbiotic relationship this, that has existed. In fact, you could say that the people of Israel have opposed God's leader at every turn. Um, there is ample evidence to support the idea that these are people that are like willful sheep that are in need of a good, strong leader. Um, so that's what we're going to do a little bit uh, as far as I'm, I'm, I will provide a little bit of a background here. If you think back uh, to our time, you know, if, if you think back to, to the book of Exodus in the time of the people of, uh, of Israel, in many ways, there are kind of three three main characters. Obviously, you have characters like Pharaoh and what have you, but really, you know, the main characters would be God, Moses, and the people. Uh, and and half the time, it seems like God and Moses are saying, "You gave me these people. What you know? They're they're frustrating to me. Why you know? Why am I having to deal with them?" And the people are kicking and screaming. So. I don't know if you've ever done this. I've I'd never done this before, but this morning, if you would please grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Exodus. We're going to do a very, very rapid skimming through, through the Bible here, and I want to highlight something for you. So obviously we have the beginning of Exodus with Moses going to Pharaoh, and eventually Pharaoh relents and now the Israelites, as God promised, are leaving Egypt. So we'll pick up in uh, chapter 14 of Exodus where they're on the west bank of, of the, uh, the Red Sea. And uh, I'm, I'm just going to highlight these things. Y'all, you know, I'm, I won't be necessarily quoting, so you don't have to look for any particular verse, but you can follow along. So notice that they're... Uh, they're, they're complaining about the fact that they're about to die, that, that Pharaoh is going to kill them, you know, and Moses, they've led them out there to die. And I can see why somebody might have that concern. But then God parts the Red Sea, and they walk through dry land, and they get on the other side, and now they're on the east side, and in chapter 15, they're complaining that they are going to die of thirst. So God provides water. Then in chapter 16 and 17, they complain about dying of starvation. And then they die, they're going to die of thirst again. 
And recall that the, the, they were at Meribah, which means, is the Lord among us or not? That's what they gave the name for the place where they were drinking water out of a rock after they walked through dry ground through the Red Sea. Um, and then if, if you keep going, uh, chapter 18 through 31 is, one is Jethro giving advice to Moses in terms of leadership and organization, but then after chapter 18, it's the transmission of the law by God uh, on Mount Sinai, and then picking up in, uh, in chapter 32, that's where Moses comes down and they're partying like it's 1999 uh, at, the, at the bottom of Mount Sinai. So they're not complaining or grumbling. They're just sinning wickedly at that point. So every chapter in Exodus includes some type of complaining against God or His appointed people, grumbling, uh, whatever it might be, other than, like I said, the, 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 the times where they're not mentioning whether they are or not. But it continues, and you don't necessarily have to follow along, but uh, it continues, for instance, in, uh, in Numbers, we get them complaining about food again, and we're told that, uh, you know, they, they want meat, and God says, yeah, I'm going to give you so much meat, it'll be coming out of your nose. Um, my, my dad had, had a quote, or has a quote, uh, that I used to hear him say, which is, uh, <laughs> be careful how bad you want something, because that's how, my, how you might get it. Bad. You might get it bad, and you might get it really bad. Um, so continuing, we have, uh, after Numbers 11, we have Numbers 12, where Miriam and Aaron think that Moses is stealing the limelight, and they want some of it, and that's where Miriam gets uh, leprosy. Um, in 13 and 14, uh, we have this egregious, cowardly display where the people of Israel fail to enter the land uh, after the report given by the spies. And then uh, in 14, at the end of 14, after Moses tells the people of God the wonderful plan that God has for their lives, where they are going to wander in the desert until they die, uh, they say, oh, hey, I think we've changed our mind. We will go into the land. And then they go in, and he says, no, don't go into the land. No, but we're going to go. And they do, and they get slaughtered. Um, in, in 16, we have the rebellion of Korah. We're back to Meribah, where Moses is able to forfeit his opportunity to enter the land. Uh, that's in chapter 20. And in uh, 21, the real crowd pleaser snakes uh, are sent to them. So that's just a, a very brief uh, kind of skimming of these, these early books of the Bible. Uh, how, 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 how would you all assess how the, the spiritual health of the people of Israel? I'd say that uh, these are people that are intent on running off the rails, is what it looks like to me. And that leads us back to, the, uh, to our text here. So this transition...
So as the writer tells us, it's the third time that Joshua's death is mentioned, and now this fixture or anchor in the lives of the people of Israel is gone. He's no longer there. And then to, to cap it off, we're told in verse 10, the beginning of verse 10, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. So those people who had obeyed are gathered to their fathers. So now Israel's strong leader is gone, and now the one generation who did get the promise to enter into the, the promised land, now they're gone. Uh, but, but we continue on here. And there arose another generation, and uh, you might note the, the dissonance in that. And after that, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So clearly a shift in the story from the faithful obedience to Joshua and the people with Joshua. Uh, the most troubling phrase of this section is the comment that says, they did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. Now, this is not, uh, this term did not know is not merely an intellectual knowledge. Uh, you know, we're, we're not referring to some godless professor at a liberal university who's teaching theology and therefore he has the knowledge. Uh, we're, we're, we're we're talking about a relationship. It's, it's like James says, the demons believe there's a God. They just don't know God. Uh, this is the same phrase that's used in the book of Samuel uh, to, to quote Del Ralph Davis. Uh, it's the same phrase used to, uh, to refer to Eli's raunchy sons. Um, now, the, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. So the, the people of Israel have hearts that have grown cold towards the Lord. And just I'll just briefly say, let us be people who draw near to God, that he might draw near to us, as, as James tells us. And the ways that we would do that would be gathering with God's people, sitting under the word, singing his praises, even when we don't feel like it. So first we're told uh, that Joshua and the generation enter the land. Uh, now we're told this new generation does not know God. Um, doesn't seem like a positive trajectory here. And if you recall from the, the text last week, that we read where the angel of the Lord said that the gods of the peoples of the land would become a snare to God's people. And a, a, a snare, obviously, is, is a trap. It's meant to trick and capture. And you, you may recall passages like Psalm 91 that refer to 
snares. Surely he shall drive, he shall deliver us from the snare of the fowler. Whenever we sing that, I always keep my eye open. Check six for the fowler. Uh, you got to watch those fowlers. Nevertheless, these people do not know God and they are in a perfect position to be captured by their enemies. So in an unsurprising turn, we read in verse 11, and the people of Israel did what was evil. In the sight of the Lord and serve the Baals. But it gets worse. And recall a couple of weeks back on Sunday night where Pastor David preached from Second uh, Chronicles about Manasseh and, uh, and the writer's use of the word and and the heaping up of evil and wickedness. So it gets worse. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Notice the rapid degradation of the people of God from their deliverance from slavery in Egypt to the nearness to God in, in the wilderness to the new generation supernaturally entering into the land, but now here they are having fully betrayed their God. But not only do they reject God, but for a, a counterfeit substitute. Now you, you ask why, why? Obviously there's a sense in which we're fallen humans and inclined towards sin. Uh, but, but what is the appeal for the people of Israel? They clearly lacked spiritual eyes to see. Uh, they, they possessed eyes of flesh. And, um, and Baal was a fleshly religion. It was a religion of the senses. In fact, uh, Del Ralph Davis in his commentary points out that in many ways, the, the books of the Bible that, that existed from this time that, Rose's, or that Moses wrote were countercultural, that it was unheard of for a God to be like the God of the Bible but why Baal? Why not something like Hinduism or Taoism or something? Uh, well, it was what they were taught by their neighbors. They failed to commit their enemies to destruction, and their enemies became their neighbors, and their neighbors taught them these things. Recall Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians 15, Do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. And this is exactly what God had warned them about. 
and the reason that he had commanded them to destroy the people of the land. Now, Baal, we hear about it. If you're, if you're like me, growing up in church, the Old Testament very often is going to include something about Baal worship. So there, here's the part where I mentioned my, my warning, my disclosure. Um, so, Baal worship is a fertility religion, just like many other religions of that day. Um, and I'm, I'm going to share with you, I'm, I'm actually just going to read from the book, but, uh, but here's why I think it's important. One, because we read about Baal worship throughout the Old Testament, ensnaring and plaguing the people of God. But also, I think by hearing the ugly description of these shameful practices, it might give a greater sense of why it is such an offense to God and uh, why he is provoked to anger as we read that he is. So let me, let me read. And by the way, you will notice, if you recall, Pastor Del Ralph Davis preached at our joint Presbytery worship service and there was a comment about his sense of humor, so you may pick up on that as we read here. Uh, in Canaanite theology and agriculture, the fertility of the land depended upon the sexual relationship between Baal and his consort. The revival of nature was due to sexual intercourse between Baal and his partner. Baal, the Canaanite faithful, didn't simply sit back and say, let Baal do it. There was no let go and let Baal thinking among them. Instead, their watchword was, serve Baal, serve Baal with gladness, all ye glands. Hence, the Canaanites practiced sacred prostitution as a part of their worship. A Canaanite man, for instance, would go to a Baal shrine and have intercourse with one of the sacred prostitutes serving there. The man would fulfill Baal's role and the woman Ashtoreth's. So the, the, whenever they mention Ashtoreth in the Bible, that's the female god. That's the counterpart to Baal. The idea was that the copulating of the worshiper and of the holy whore would encourage the divine couple, Mr. and Mrs. Baal, to do their thing and thus cause the rain or grain or oil to flow again. So I think you, you get the point. So that's, that's what the people of Israel did not deal with when they entered the land. And now that's what they have begun to practice. And as you read through, for instance, Leviticus, and you see the 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 ideal way that God commanded them to live, you can see what a what a dramatic departure that is uh, from from what God had commanded. So back to the text here. Notice the Lord's response to Israel's faithfulness in verses 14 to 15. The, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their, their surrounding enemies. 
so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, which is exactly what God said he would do. Uh, so recall Deuteronomy 28, 25, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. Notice it also describes God as being angry. And obviously this is something that we're often discouraged from, from doing, being angry. Most of the time in our cases, uh, it's sinful. Ephesians says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. However, within the bonds of a covenant, and in particular for our God, it is wholly appropriate. And in fact, it is part of who, who God is here. What would it say about God who had entered into a covenant with the people of Israel if he were not upset? So imagine, for instance, uh, uh, an unjealous husband who finds out of his wife's, you know, uh, infidelity. Um, I once was somewhere where... It was one of the most bizarre experiences I've ever had. It was when I was in the military, and it was someone who was dealing with uh, psychological issues, and um, this was a wife of someone that I was working with. And you had seen this escalation over several weeks of this woman. We were only together for five weeks for a temporary duty, and... Uh, you know, right off the bat, things seemed a little strange, but it only got stranger. And she, at the end of the of this five-week course, she walks into our flight room and, and she says, he got me, he got me. And she's crying and wailing and it's hysterical. And, and the husband's response was, oh, baby, it's okay. And I'm kind of like, what the heck is going on? <laughs> it's not okay. <laughs> I, you know, where is this guy? Uh, you know, it's, it's not okay. Uh, anyway, um, so it is appropriate for, for the Lord in this case. And if you think this is only the Old Testament God, then uh, recall Jesus' words, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Um, and it is part of who God is that causes him to pursue us in our sin when we forsake him. So, remember that in your times of trouble. Notice at the very end of, uh, of verse 15, it, it just notes that the people were in terrible distress. And, uh, and, and remember that our God sees all things. So then we move to a blessing. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. 
but since they can't help themselves, we continue to read that uh, they did not listen to their judges, and they hoard after other gods, and we go through this cycle again. And here's where the writer of the book of Judges is telling us what we can expect for the rest of the book of Judges. One, that the Israelites will pursue wickedness, and two, that God will raise up judges who will restrain them and rescue them from their enemies. So clearly the writer is tying the well-being of the Israelites to the existence of a judge. Now, is this sustainable? What's the obvious problem for the people of Israel here? That judges, judges die. There's not a judge who's living forever to keep them from trouble. And, and once again, we see the, uh, the tender mercies of the Lord here in verse 18 where it says, The Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. And I've mentioned this before. I, I challenge anyone to find in Scripture where someone cries out to the Lord and he doesn't hear. Moving on, we have a curse. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded to their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations. So they get what they want, which only causes them trouble. And then the Lord sends them a judge to deliver them, but then they turn right back around. And notice... As we continue on in that passage there in verse, uh, I believe it's 21, it talks about the Lord using this to test the people of Israel. Notice that it doesn't, doesn't say tempt. So this is, this is like, uh, this is not like James chapter 1 verse 13. It's like James chapter 1 verse 12. In 13 it says, that temptation is related to sin. In 12, it says passing this test is related to receiving the crown of life. Continuing on in verse 23, so the Lord left those nations not driving them out, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So again, this is exactly what we're or what, what the Israelites were promised in the blessings and the curses that were associated with obedience and Deuteronomy and he said as I mentioned the Lord will cause you to be defeated by before your enemies then we are provided with this summary uh, in in chapter or in chapter 3 verses 1 to 4 where we're given a list of these various people and notice uh, this specific report given in Verse 5, where it says, The people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Why does the writer of Judges mention these people in particular? What's so special about this list? It, it, it just so happens that this is the exact same list that, that Moses mentions back in Deuteronomy 20, where he says, But you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, 
the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. And by the way, um, the Israelites never fully dealt with this issue. You may remember, I know all you, all of you do, Bathsheba, who was married to Uriah the Hittite. Uh, so they, they lived among them, continuing on. And, and finally, as evidence of their complete transition into sinfulness and their further, their further ensnaring and entangling of Israel, in verse 6 it says, And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. So not only are the people of Israel not putting to death their enemies as the Lord commanded, but they are uniting themselves and entering into covenant with their enemies. So what? As I wrap it up very quickly. Four things that come to my mind. One, God's people need constraints. And one of those is the ordinary means that he gives uh, to include uh, leaders, flawed, flawed leaders. Uh, and we can look at verses such as uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 to 18 that Pastor Gilbert preached from a few weeks back where our growth in godliness is connected with one another. Um, and then two, uh, you are a fool if you trust in yourself to keep yourself from sin. As Proverbs 3, 5 says, trust in the Lord, lean not unto your own understanding. Joshua's famous speech that we often remember, as for me and my house, is actually a chastisement of the people of Israel, if you go back and, and read it, and a warning to them. But note <laughs> that in response to this chastisement, the people of Israel say, oh, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, as we just read about. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six says, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Sin is not your neighbor and is not to be loved. And the Israelites failed to deal with their enemies as enemies as God warned them. Matthew 18, verse 9, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Or as John Owen says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And then finally, Exodus 34, verse 7. This is the, uh, how can it be? In Exodus, Exodus 34, verse 7, Moses says, 
The Lord, the Lord, O a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Uh, this, this clearly highlights God's graciousness and mercy towards us. So since I'm a little over time here, why don't I close in prayer? Gracious God, once again, we thank you for this, this passage. We ask that, uh, that you would help us to learn from it. Father, we pray that by your spirit, we might turn from our sin and, and put sin to death in our lives, that we might not toy with it. Father, we ask that, uh, that you would continue to Help us to be encouraged in the faithful practices of, of holiness that we might uh, live our lives in a way that is pleasing to you. We pray now that you'd prepare our hearts and minds for worship this morning. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.